0: How can you be part of a religious community that's straight up behind signs or like see good as is suspicious? The church seems to be stuck they in their
1: ways exists. when the rest of the culture is moving. They, so obsessed with they keep trying to get answers, would but they never don't even be a know part the questions we're asking today. The as church is the most t- vocal, political, political theory, voice theory. against imagery. Some churches still don't the want to claim that worship is the actual political. How can you story really be good is that is when the majority, majority of people? The, people people the, on the, the church seems to be stuck to hell in their ways. Them. When the rest of the culture moves, like, it seems
0: like, like so much of the church is concerned with being a good American. They are being homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, <sighs> disconnected from what is truly happening
1: in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today, our very, very special guest is Matthew Vines. And Matthew is the founder and executive director of the Reformation Project and author of the great book, God and the Gay Christian, The Biblical Case in Support of Same-Sex Relationships. And I'm going to jump into this. What year did that come out?
0: That came out in 2014.
1: 2014, which means you wrote that... At a very young age. That's impressive, man. Yeah, That's I started awesome. it. I don't I want to expose your age as the first thing here, you know, so, you know, I just no. know it's pretty young.
0: I guess I wrote it when I was 22 and 23. That's amazing. That's awesome.
1: Matthew attended Harvard University from 2008 to 2010. He then took a leave of absence in order to research the Bible and same-sex relationships and work toward LGBTQ inclusion in the church. And in March 2012, Matthew delivered this speech at a church in his hometown of Wichita, Kansas, about the Bible and same-sex relationships, calling for acceptance of gay Christians and their marriage relationships. The video of that speech was viewed more than a million times on YouTube, leading to a feature story in the New York Times that fall. So Matthew was one of the, he was an early adopter of going viral, and he didn't even know what that was at the time, but he was already making it happen. In 2013, he launched the Reformation Project, a Bible-based Christian nonprofit organization that works to advance LGBTQ inclusion in the church while remaining grounded in a love for God, a love for the Bible, and a love for the church. And he just came out with, and I really, really hope people check this out, I think especially for clergy, for people in their personal lives, for groups people are working with, he just came out with an in-depth seven-hour video curriculum is, it, is this right? Is it called The Biblical Case for LGBTQ Inclusion? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, new video curriculum looks great just from the preview that I've seen. I'm going to stop there. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today personally and with all of the listeners as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin.
1: Let's. Uh, I usually give people a chance to do this. It would be helpful, and it's always interesting to hear where people are speaking from, right? The context of our, like, our life is our message in so many ways. So the story itself speaks even within and before what we're saying. So introduce yourself to the people a bit more personally. Like, if we zoomed out a bit, what are some of those bigger picture movements and moments in your life that have led you to where you are? And even more narrow, specifically with your life of faith and your life connected with the church.
0: Yeah, so I was born and raised in Wichita, Kansas, as you mentioned, in a Christian home. And my parents, probably the single most important thing that they wanted to pass on to my sister and me was their love for and faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I first asked Jesus into my heart when I was three. And ever since then, that's just kind of been the North Star for everything in my life um for how i understand the world who i am my place in it uh the purpose of everything uh is really grounded in my faith in jesus so that has not changed uh it's not going to change um but it certainly what does change and what has changed is how i've how I have or haven't fit in to the church um, based on especially uh, my own beliefs about secondary theological issues, namely same-sex relationships and transgender people. and But also then just coming out and uh, coming to terms with being gay. So I came out then when I was in, I first had to actually undergo the process of kind of studying this topic on an impersonal level before I had even allowed myself to ask questions about my own sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And it's only once I had done enough Bible study and and worked through this enough that I had changed my mind about it for the sake of other people and actually become passionate about it as I came to believe that it was an issue of justice and human Mm -hmm. dignity and something that the church was getting really wrong in a way that was uh, just kind of tarnishing the witness of the church, the message of Jesus, and really inhibiting a lot of people from being able to come to know the love of God um, because it was all being uh, clouded by this uh, very harmful and incorrect teaching about same-sex relationships. So... um, But then once I became passionate about it for other people, I still had kind of wished at the time, I thought, you know, it would be nice if some gay person, uh, when they came out, would also stick around and kind of just help to explain how to understand these scripture passages in a way that still affirms the authority of the Bible, but also allows Christians like me who want to be supportive to be more informed mm. uh, and better equipped to have these conversations with other Christians in the church. I thought, but I'm not actually going to say that because that sounds very unfair um, to mm-hmm. say that some gay person needs to do that, but it just seems like it would be helpful if they did. Um, so then fast forward six months or so when I then actually give myself a space to ask myself more questions and to just finally, you know, ask myself whether or not I might be gay Mm-hmm. Once I got asked myself, that was pretty obvious what the answer was, and I realized, oh, okay, well, I guess I get to do this then because <laughs> I wanted here somebody. I, here, I,
1: here, here I am, Lord, send me. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And so I ended
0: up. Uh, I never ended up finishing college. It's funny. I had originally said in that bio, I took a leave of absence. Well, it's a very extended leave of absence that's never going to uh, <laughs> stop. Uh, so yeah, I, I left school. To go back home, come out to my parents, work through this conversation with them, that was a really formative experience for me because it showed me how with the right combination of a transformative relationship um, and deep biblical study, mm. non-affirming Christians in my life could change their mind and become affirming. But it really took that particular combination. I think if I, especially for my dad, if I had... Um, just presented him what I thought was a really good biblical argument but hadn't actually come out to him, I still don't think that that would have been enough for him because Mm. his whole... He didn't even know any openly gay people before I came out to him at all. So I just think there's only so far that you can ask somebody to to think about something when that's so far removed from their own understanding and experience of the world. Um, But if I had just come out to him and not done a biblical study with him that also wouldn't have been enough. Mm. Uh, It was enough to change his heart, but it wasn't enough to change his mind because he still needed to understand uh, how to affirm scripture and the authority of scripture um, and not feel like he had to choose between those two things. And so seeing how those two things, when you put them together uh, were able to lead him to change his mind and my mother as well, Um, I know that that's not the case for everybody. Not everybody is as fortunate as I am and I was to have parents who would even be willing to engage that conversation. But um, there are, even though that's not everybody, I think there are a lot of Christians out there who, if they're engaged in the right way, in a way that is coming from a place of shared beliefs, a place of uh, respect, relationship, and love, and a commitment to Scripture— I think there are a lot of Christians who can and will change their minds on this and that continues to happen. And so that's really informed my entire approach to this conversation ever since then is that I know that this, there are a lot of people who can be reached and I want to help reach them in the, in the most effective way.
1: Yeah. Before I move on to any questions or or the, the recent, was that a keynote at the reformation project that you posted? Yes. Yeah. 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 We'll talk. We'll talk about that in a sec because there's so much to say, so much good stuff there. But one, don't feel bad about Harvard because you got two years in, and then they recruited me to play basketball there as a kid. And because my grades were so bad and I was a troubled youth, I didn't even think about going. So I had zero years. You had two, so you're ahead of me on that one. They recruited you to play basketball. <laughs> that was the that was the first recruitment letter I got as a sophomore, and it's funny. I I, I think I wrote about this in the first book, and when I opened the letter. And my basketball coach handed it to me, and I opened it. And when I saw what it was, I looked at him, and we both started laughing. I think that was both of us being like, you're not going there. And I was like, I know. Oh. But nevertheless, I have it. It was official, that's... so I'm, 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 I'm holding that forever.
0: No, that's very cool. I'm impressed. No, and honestly, I didn't mind leaving. I didn't actually love it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I did. I loved it, and I also hated it. I had a strong love-hate relationship with it, so I was, I was perfectly happy to move on. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and no, I think that was a good move. And what's really amazing and and ends up can kind of being foreshadowing about your experience with your parents and your father and into the work you do now is your relationship with him and the work you had already done in this really amazing way embodies the the head and the heart. It embodies the the theological and biblical aspects for people who want to take the Bible seriously, who, who, who believe in the authority of the scriptures and who take following Jesus seriously. And it takes that seriously and the incarnational flesh and blood reality of people. You know, I always think that story in Acts is so amazing and what they say when they're thinking about Gentile inclusion and And they just start telling stories about what's been happening. And I'm like, it's amazing how it's the stories of the people are woven into that. You know, it wasn't just argumentation. And that's really cool. And I I would, you know, I can see how much that could inform the, I'm doing this and taking it very seriously. The scriptural work, the theology, the biblical studies, the language, all of that, which even even when you were in your early 20s writing was already present. But also where... For that conversation to happen in the envelope of connection and relationship and flesh and blood where our hearts are open with real stories, like those two held together to me so much is what you're doing and what helps pave the path towards not a guarantee but more possibilities in the future for inclusion. So that's really an amazing story how it just does that for you guys in the beginning, you know, in the work you continue to do. That's so cool. Um, For the talk. So Matthew just gave this keynote speech at the Reformation Project's annual conference, I believe. You can find it on YouTube. What would they type in to find that?
0: Uh, I mean, you could just go to Reformation Project on YouTube. It's the talk is called Yesterday, Today and Forever, mm-hmm. The Heart of Christianity. So you could okay, also type so, that in.
1: Yeah, so Reformation Project, you can find it on YouTube. Great talk, some of his most recent stuff. It's always good to hear from people you know, recently because you know we change over time. And I have a few quotes and a few questions that come from that. So the first one is, it's such an interesting talk, by the way. It really, it really was. The first one you say, quote, Christians can and should become affirming while continuing to affirm and uphold the authority of the Bible as the word of God. Why is that connection between these so important for you to communicate and emphasize right now right they should and can be they can and should be affirming while continuing to affirm and uphold the authority
0: yeah i mean in many ways that's kind of been what's been distinctive about my message from the very beginning so in the church that i was raised in a conservative evangelical church this conversation didn't even need to happen in fact it couldn't happen Mm -hmm. because it was just assumed and taken for granted that anybody who affirmed same-sex relationships did not care about the authority of the Bible. They were not committed to it. They were perfectly content to say, yeah, well, Paul was a homophobic sexist bigot and we need to move on from Paul mm. or in nicer ways. Well, Paul was a man of his times. So we don't agree with him anymore. Mm. Um, but how, whether you put in more strident or less strident terms, right. still the concept just being of, yeah, we don't really care. Like that's in the Bible and we don't really care. And so when that's the approach that it's a very easy conversation to avoid altogether for conservative Christians, for theologically conservative Christians. It's just like, well, the issue isn't how you interpret any particular passage. The issue is whether you even are committed to scripture as a starting point. And if you're not, well, of course, you're going to come to an affirming conclusion. You can come to any conclusion on anything that you want if you're not committed to an affirming, if you're not committed to the authority of the scriptures. So I think for me, that's been foundational to how I've always understood my faith as well and how i've always taught it is that it's not a complete it's 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 not that there isn't room for debate and disagreement and interpretation around a lot of things because there is but it is not a kind of choose your own adventure um mm-hmm. where we just get to make things up we have the bible Um, and that is, yes, there's still, that doesn't answer all of our questions by any stretch of the imagination. If it did, we wouldn't have thousands of different denominations, Mm. but it does provide some boundaries. You can't decide tomorrow, you know, that, uh, something that is just totally, you you can't just start adding new things altogether. We're not going to be adding new books to the Bible um, there's there's going to be some limitations on what is even a possibility for Christians to believe. And so I think that, I mean, that really is the way that the vast majority of Christians around the world understand and approach the Bible. And so on the one hand, I think, wow, we'd really be shooting ourselves in the foot um, as supporters of LGBTQ inclusion to tell people that in order to support that, uh, yeah, you probably need to abandon the view of the Bible that the ma- vast majority of Christians today and throughout yeah, history ever right, right, held right. because yeah. then it, it feels like you're not saying if the, the, it, what it feels like you're saying to people is actually you can't be a Christian in anything like the way that you have understood that term and be affirming. You have to mm-hmm. completely, you have to throw out everything you've really ever believed about the Bible in order to do this. That is just, that is a bridge too far right, for most absolutely. people. And so, I mean, you could just look at that from a strategic standpoint and think that that's a losing proposition but it's also from the standpoint of someone like me who I actually, I believe in the Bible. And I think that the Bible is severely underrated um, and often is getting a really bad rap for reasons that aren't entirely fair. And so in some ways it's also like, no, I want people to be able to actually engage with the Bible and the message of the Bible uh, and the truth of the Bible. And part of the purpose of me doing this too, is to help people realize, Hey, um, this this, this particular uh, understanding, this particular interpretation is in fact wrong. We can and should correct that. um, But that then should open open us up, give us even more room to then connect with the Bible itself Mm -hmm. without feeling like kind of, you know, we're hiding the light of the Bible under, under a bushel of Mm -hmm. something that is untrue and harmful. So I just also think that, I mean, you know, the message of the Bible is how we know about who Jesus is and what he did for us and who God is and, who we are and all these things. And that, that would just be a a horrible thing to, to kind of abandon in a almost reactive um, movement away from the way that the Bible has been uh, misused and misapplied.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so good. And it might be strange for people who have friends who are, who are LGBTQ and Christians and who have been a part of their lives to, to think this, but it would, I, I feel like it would be surprising for a lot of Christians. Like when you mentioned your dad didn't know any openly gay people, you know, before, before you came out and people who haven't had close relationships with, with gay people, or especially people who are consciously and openly gay and wrestling with their faith and being involved in those lives to I think people would be surprised a lot of Christians to be in those relationships and conversations to know how seriously people are taking the Bible and want to be obedient. I'm like, they're using language about obedience to scripture. I don't even use, you know, like I've sat around tables. Like at imagine, I might've mentioned this to you years ago. I don't even remember, but we've had this initiative called saying grace at imagine where it's like, it's led by me and a queer woman in our church, Dr. Jade Higa. If you're listening, shout out to Dr. Higa I'm sure she'll be excited that we're both on right now, you know, because I'm I'm sure she loves your stuff too. But we would, you know, lead these groups of you know, half straight, usually traditional views on, on sexuality Christians, and then half LGBTQ Christians. And we would have these like four Monday nights or four nights in a row, dinners, curated conversations, head and heart, you know, all it's like one of my favorite things we've done in, in the life of Imagine. And for people to sit in there, you would hear the story of this young gay man who's knows his sexual identity, but it's like, I don't know what to do because I want to obey the Bible. You know, I want like, this is not a person who is saying I'm going to do whatever I want because of whatever reason someone might say, you just do what you want. You can pick and choose. No, this is a person who's really taking the scriptures seriously as they're grappling with how to be faithfully LGBTQ, how to be a faithful Christian and have same-sex attraction, be in same-sex relationships, et cetera. And that's such a, I don't know, that's just something I think people would still be surprised by if they actually had those flesh and blood relationships like you were describing. So I love that that emphasis holds that together. I just, again, as a whole, the work you're doing so well. And you know, you, uh, you spend an, ex- we're, let's continue in the talk, right? You spend an extensive amount of time in your talk, restating and reaffirming the centrality of death, of crucifixion and resurrection as central to the gospel. Jesus dying for our sins, some form of, you know, however we put that together on the cross, right? Jesus dying for our sins, a physical, material, bodily resurrection being at the center of our faith, right? You biblical I mean, in this talk, it's really biblical exegesis, early church fathers, multiple theologians, having people there read the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene's Creed, right? When you do that in this talk, you're not just talking about you know people being LGBTQ or changing their minds and hearts on that, but you're talking about kind of this larger moment of deconstruction and reconstruction in our time, where we're at. With that broader time of people are rethinking, reimagining, letting go, taking the whole deconstructing, reconstructing, why right now in that talk, was that at the heart for you? Why take that much time to reemphasize that in this specific talk? Because it really seemed to be, you know, a major heart of what you were saying right there.
0: No, absolutely. And it's something I'm passionate about because, I mean, I get it. There are so many uh, very valid uh, critiques that people have, issues that people have that have caused people to feel disillusioned um, with the church. Um, We, you know, we can go down a whole list of things that are really important that the church has gotten really wrong Um, just in our own time, or ways that the church is discipling people or not discipling people um, that call into question for a lot of people the plausibility and the truthfulness of maybe the whole thing. Um, So, But it also, as our society has been becoming more and more polarized, you see this also playing out in, in church conversations as well, where it all kind of becomes a, you know, on this side, we're going to not just hold this position on this, but also that's going to come along with these 50 other positions on these other things. And what's interesting is that even though I overall uh, agree with, or I'm sympathetic to um, most of the primary concerns of people on the progressive side of the spectrum in terms of, you um, Critiques that the people have of the church right now. Um, what concerns me is if people are only focused on the problems and they're only focused on the things that we are saying no to or right. rejecting or criticizing, but we don't still have any foundation at the end of the day for shared beliefs that are positive and constructive beliefs mm-hmm. in our faith, not just the things that we disagree with, and things that are distinctively Christian, not just things like. You know, while social justice is important, you don't have to be a Christian to believe that social justice is important. Mm -hmm. And so, what are the things that are actually distinctively Christian beliefs that are then going to shape and reshape everything else in your life and your belief system? Mm -hmm. And I think it's really easy to get so focused on the things that need to be criticized that then we can forget to really work through well, what are those positive beliefs that we still believe in right um and then that ends up having so while i have a ton of understanding and sympathy for how a deconstruction process can kind of become this never-ending uh thing (laughs) where you almost just deconstruct to nothingness i think that there are actually when you step back i think that there are really good reasons to hold on to some things at the core So some people will sometimes say, oh, well, X belief, Y belief, you know, this, this only came about, this was only, you know, an American evangelical fixation, or this only came about with Calvin or Luther, or this only came about once Christianity became, you know, equated with state power, um, you know, after Constantine or whatnot. But while there are plenty of valid critiques to make of the church history and church tradition, part of my goal in focusing specifically on 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, is that the oral creed that we find in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, can be dated to the very earliest years of the Christian faith after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, And that is, and, and Paul says that this is what he passed, he passed on what he himself received. So he wrote this letter to the, to the Corinthians, you know, in the early fifties AD, but he talks about having received this. And then you match this up to the timeline that he gave for when he was with the early apostles and some of his other letters. Um, That seems to be something that happened within just a few years um, of his own conversion. And this is clearly something that has been uh, a kind of, yes, oral creed that that was shared and passed down among early Christians from the very beginning. This isn't something, this is something that you truly can de-link from so many of the other problems or issues this is not a function of state power seeking conformity for political ends this is not a function of you know greek philosophy then coming in and trying to systematize everything no this is just what the earliest followers of Jesus believed after in the immediate aftermath of his death and that is what paul says he passed on first importance that pre- That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the Twelve. And he goes on to describe how he's seen by 500. But it's those three verses in particular that are, where there's the most agreement among biblical scholars across the ideological spectrum, not even just Christians, not just conservative or evangelical biblical, biblical scholars, liberal biblical scholars and atheist biblical scholars who widely agree this is absolutely <clears throat> basic. This is, this is not something that was cooked up later and it was trying to be retrojected back into scriptures. A lot of people want to try to say today, Paul gets really bad rap. And so a lot of people want to say, Oh, well, anything Paul said, this was just his later interpretation where he was trying to fit things in. But really, if you just look at what, you know, people, people trying to separate these things. And it's not that you can't find a different thematic emphases in for instance, the synoptic gospels versus the letters of Paul, you certainly can, you're going to find certainly a much more fleshed out uh, theology of the atonement in the letters of Paul than some of the like hints that you see in, in Jesus's own teachings, right. About he came to be, you know, a ransom for many. I mean, it's not that you don't see anything about this, even, you know, in the opening chapter of John, right. You know, here's, you know, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, But so some people, will try to divide these things in order to say, well, everything that Paul said, we can just set that aside. That's not real. We're just going to go with it. But it's just, but that's not actually, if you're just even thinking about it from using critical historical methods of literary criticism, that's not, that's not a persuasive argument based on the evidence that we have. Um, The idea that any theology, and I'm not interested really into debating all of the different understandings people have of the atonement, but the idea of, because Christians have done that for centuries, and I feel like that's, you know, we'll have these, these intramural <laughs> um, <laughs> debates for centuries, and so that's fine. But the fact of the atonement itself, that Jesus died for our sins, that goes back to the very beginning of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And so I think we, it's important to just recognize, and when people are trying to peel back the layers, like, what's there from the beginning and why does that even matter? So some people will say, well, and because that, that's the other thing that people bring up. Well, okay. Even if that's there, well, maybe I don't like that. Mm-hmm. And that sounds too violent to me or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's just like, well, there are like, I think there are lots of reasons why that matters. Partly it's an incredible uh, leveler, Uh, in terms of leveling the playing field, removing our ability to, at least with any validity, to be self-righteous toward other people, to look down morally on other people, because we all have to come to terms with the fact and, and have the humility to recognize that we're all really equally at the foot of the cross in need of salvation, in need of God's grace, forgiveness, and mercy. And I I think that absolutely changes how we treat other people. Um, That's going to make us much less uh, prone to the kind of self-righteous moralizing and condemnation that is just so common today in ways that I do not think uh, are ways that we would be treating other people if we spent more time reflecting on and absorbing some of these basic Christian precepts and and beliefs so it's not just like oh well you just you you failed the math test because these were cognitive beliefs then you didn't cognitively assent to these propositions if that's all it is I mean that's that's a real snoozer right like Mm. the idea is that if you believe these things it will transform the way that you live your life and sure there are a lot of people who will give lip service to these things whose lives don't reflect that and that is a problem But I don't think the answer to that problem is to say, well, let's stop believing these things Um, or, you know, let's stop believing in the resurrection or something like that because we're upset about all the problems in the American evangelical church. I just think that's a complete misfire in terms of uh, diagnosing the problem. So, I mean, that's part of the reason I wanted to talk about it, because for a lot of people, these questions and one of the biggest things that also holds a lot of people back, a lot of Christians back from even touching the LGBTQ conversation is Frankly, a lot of people are terrified that this conversation is going to lead to deconstruction into nothingness of their faith. And if they see people who that has been their experience, then you can understand why people might feel that way. And I do have understanding and compassion for why people would have that concern that I do not think that that is the necessary consequence of changing your mind about this conversation. But I totally understand how if that's what you have seen then that is what you would think. And then suddenly, once again, we've, we've raised the stakes of this conversation dramatically. It's no longer just about people's deep-seated beliefs about marriage and sexuality, which is already a significant
1: mm-hmm.
0: and challenging thing for people to discuss. But it's, it raises the question for you, oh, no, this conversation is really making me ask, do I even believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he was raised from the dead, that he, you know, do I believe in the Trinitarian Godhead? Like Father, Son, Holy Spirit, do I believe in the Bible as the word of God? Uh, And I mean, the primary reason that I care about this and want to talk about it is that I think that those things are all true. And if they're true, and if we have good reasons to believe them, then I think we should. But also, secondarily, it's not as important, but it's not insignificant either. It's just a really bad... if like my goal and my vision on the LGBTQ conversation, I want to see a global church that is fully LGBTQ affirming. And I am confident that will not happen as long as this is the way that the conversation is framed. Mm. If the conversation is framed, yeah, if you actually want to still confidently affirm and believe any of the things that you were taught growing up about Jesus, then you'll hold a conservative view. If you're willing to just make everything a giant question mark, then you can be affirming. That's just not... that is not how most people work, right? Like there will always be people who are more open to everything being the giant question mark, but I don't think that's most people. Mm-hmm. Um, most people want and need a little bit more clarity. And it doesn't mean that we can't still have and shouldn't want to have an appropriate level of nuance and context in interpretation, all these things. But I do just think from a basic human psychology standpoint, if you tell people, here are the things we can confidently hold on to, nothing. <laughs> I just think people people cannot and will not go with you there. And so I think it's a terrible strategy for the LGBTQ conversation as well to to uh, frame things this way, or even if things, even if that wasn't the intentional, oh, let's frame this day, if it just kind of happens, then, uh, I guess that is how it's framed because now we're just turned into either you're going to be on essentially in American terms, the blue team or the red team. And over here on the blue team, we're going to just move in each team moves as far in the opposite direction as possible. Well, what is that going to look like theologically for the progressive side? That's going to look like we're now going to say you're allowed to believe things, but you don't need to believe any particular things, mm-hmm. at least not any particular things that conservatives believe. Mm-hmm. But people will be very uh, clear well you actually have to believe you have to be affirming you have to believe all these things about like it, you know all, basically anything that so I, I don't know that that's kind of another that's that's another <laughs> yeah, no man. altogether but yeah i don't know if that was too
1: no everybody, too much. everybody listening in take a deep breath because there was a lot of stuff there and a lot of so much really so much there so much goodness and so much truth and so much wisdom of what it looks like to move forward and why moving backwards and remembering the tradition is such a foundational part of being able to move forward and allow the church to evolve in appropriate ways, specifically when we talk about LGBTQ inclusion, while remaining rooted in the tradition that we're in. Like there's so much there and I can, and I can feel that in your, in, you know, in in your talk and where you're at right now of like the desire to, to hold all that together. You know, when I was in grad school, I was focusing on like black and womanist thought and with my professor who I love, Ralph C. Watkins, you know, in Africana studies, oftentimes I would assume based on what he's saying, they use this image of a Sankofa bird where a Sankofa bird flies forward with its head turned backwards always has this imagery of remembering where we've been as we're moving hmm. forward. And, you know, Stanley Hauerwa says to become a Christian is to jump on a moving train. And so when you look back at the beginning of the life of faith, not post Constantine, everything's just power dynamics when it comes to the creeds, you know, but when you're making the argument of like the early church, these foundational beliefs, when it was still a marginalized community, right. Starting from the bottom there, it's like, there's these, the tradition is these great riverbanks banks. That are flowing forward that we're still swimming in. Does it widen? Hopefully, you know, the riverbanks can widen out, you know, and still remain the river. And I think it's so important the work and going back to the scriptures, going back to the tradition, because even as you're arguing for LGBTQ inclusion, you're like, we're not getting out of the river. Yeah. We're flowing down the same river that was born out of the resurrection that we've been moving forward on together. We're not getting out of the river. We're actually continuing to evolve on the river while still staying rooted in the tradition and still knowing that history. And I do think now with the work you're doing and in that talk, like it's funny to think how what you were saying in 2013 Could be provocative or offensive to people on the conservative side of the spectrum but some of that call back to the tradition and to some of those foundational beliefs could be heard as provocative or maybe a little like wait what why is he saying this to people who are on the other onto the much more progressive side of the spectrum so but the calling of like jesus with the pharisees of using the prophets to critique the things they're doing like how do you radicalize people by taking them deeper into their own traditions as the form of moving forward so and also in that talk you didn't mention this the the brilliance and I forget who you were quoting but you can't build your life only on saying no
0: oh yeah saying that was...
1: no is a in the deconstructive my faith is growing evolving of course we're saying no to things that are getting in the way of course we're all going to do that and we should and we need to we need to say it publicly we need to say it out loud but you can't build a life like a sustained genuine joy-filled liberative life in christ just on saying no that comes from the foundational yes that we're saying and yeah. affirming yeah.
0: And you also can't build your faith on saying yes to things purely based on subjective measurements like what makes me feel alive or what makes me feel most fulfilled. Mm-hmm. It's not that there isn't some room for recognizing, you know, whether something is, you know, uh, leading people to have, you know, terrible consequences or good ones. But at the end of the day, it's like we have the scriptures for a reason. So it's not just, well, you know, the belief that Jesus died for my sins, it just doesn't, it doesn't bring me joy. Well, you know, in some ways, it's just like, that doesn't change the fact (laughs) that whether it brings you joy or not, frankly, it should, Mm -hmm. because um, now you are freed (laughs) from Mm -hmm. condemnation. um, And now you don't have to feel shame. Um, for anything that you have done or ever will do wrong. I mean, that's pretty amazing, honestly. I think it should bring you joy. Mm -hmm. But even if it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that that is true and that that is what Christians have always believed. And so that's why my thing is to know, like we've got to keep looking to the Bible as our standard. Doesn't mean we will always agree on every jot and tittle of the interpretation. Of course we won't. But some things are less you know with with certain things there's more room for interpretation and in other things it's just a bit more it is a bit more straightforward and clear because of how central those things are to the message of scripture itself mm-hmm. um and like you know there's there's no plausible interpretation of scripture in which Jesus is the bully right no mm-hmm. right like you no and i think we all know that intuitively mm-hmm. no you know like there, there's enough clarity and enough consistency in some of these things. So, yeah, I think that's, I just, I think people sometimes because of the way that the Bible has been weaponized and misused can feel like, Oh, we can't actually look to the Bible as um, our measuring stick in sorting through what beliefs we're still going to affirm. But if we can't, but if we can't do that, then, you, there's no way to really coherently maintain a Christian identity. Mm. I mean, that there just isn't. Mm. And a lot of people then decide that they may not even be interested in doing that anymore. Mm. Um, and pastorally, again, I can have compassion for that. But I think there are really good reasons to do that. And I also think that because... I think that Christianity is true. um, That's probably the best reason um, to do it. And so that's just why I want to invite people. And maybe everybody is not in a place where they are able, willing, or interested to do this. um, But I want to continue to, this is honestly that my strategy, my approach toward non-affirming conservative Christians from the beginning has been, look, my goal is not to be provocative, right? My goal has never been to be provocative. It's just that I think that it, I think that, the non-affirming theology around LGBTQ people is not true and is incredibly harmful. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, my message from the beginning has been, Hey, I want to invite you to reconsider this because I don't think that it is true. And I think the fact that it's, and I think that the harm this is doing is, is I think this is really important. So, but I, I mean, inherently it's been a provocative message just because, but I've always tried to go out of my way not to be needlessly right, you know, right, right. inflammatory or provocative. Yeah. But it just kind of is. And it's. I feel the similar way toward some people kind of on the more progressive end of the spectrum now. My goal is not to be provocative. It's just to say, hey, I actually I think that these things are true. And because I think they're true, I think they're really important. And so I just want to invite people to... Uh, This is my whole thing. I want to invite people to study scripture more closely and more carefully in order to make sure that we are understanding it as faithfully and accurately as possible because it matters. It matters for LGBTQ people when it comes to that conversation, and it matters for everybody when it comes to what is that core, what is that heart of our faith as Christians that we can and should continue to to Affirm today, so that's just my thing. I know not everybody's going to be in a place where they are interested, but I do think a lot of people are, and I think over time, a lot of people too. You know, maybe once there might be a period for a lot of people where you've got so much stuff you need to unpack that that's kind of all you can focus on for mm-hmm. the time being, right? But that over time, I do think a lot of people will say, Okay, I realize now I do want more of a firm foundation for some things. What are some avenues that I can explore to figure out what those things might be? So that's part of my invitation
1: in that respect. Oh, man, so good. You know, when I think about people, you know, people who would greatly benefit from the work, the writing, the, the things you're doing with the Reformation Project, everything that you're doing. What I've, it appears for a lot of Christians, there's this ongoing tension they feel between the head and the heart. Like, and I'm a pastor, my wife and I are church planners, co-founders of a church, right? That we're in like, I don't know, our eighth, ninth year or whatever. It's COVID. I, it's hard to keep track of time. COVID time really different, you know, to think about it. But what I've seen is it's like in their heart, people want to embrace welcome and be in relationships with LGBTQ people in the church, like in the same way they would with anybody else. But when they talk about their beliefs, now you're going to like, you know, convictions, theological convictions, or just the beliefs they have. They still are holding on to traditional views when it comes to same-sex attraction and relationships. And it's like there's this conflict. And it's as if it can seem like their minds have a hard time catching up or aligning with their hearts. You know, it's like in their heart, in their bodies, it's like in their hearts and bodies, they're already well like they're already pr- practically inclusive and embracing because they are in those relationships but they hold on to those beliefs so therefore it does create this strange conflict it, it's as if the bible and their beliefs can get in the way of the, per- the of them feeling the permission to love and embrace others fully right do you see that have you sensed that do you experience that and also like does it have to be like that what would you say to people who are still kind of putting those things together
0: no, absolutely. That's a reality. I, I honestly think people who are in that particular kind of place tend to be the people I engage the most with mm. because they tend to be the people who are in a place of developing more curiosity and interest in considering or even becoming aware of another theological perspective. Mm. Um, so I think that's a good you know, compared to another place that people commonly could be, which is having no real understanding of LGBTQ people and maybe very limited compassion um, and desire to understand, I think that's a much better place to be, to ha- say I have these relationships, my heart has opened and changed. Uh, but that's that's really why I, in many ways, you know, why do I do? I, do why I started the Reformation Project to help meet people where they're at and help uh, help provide those theological resources address and answer the questions that people may have um so but yeah i think for anybody who's in that place i would just encourage them to to not just pause there but to to take that cognitive dissonance that they may feel as a nudge inviting them to to read more to study more because there really are excellent resources out there. And I think that most people, once they're in that place, if they take the time to study those resources and engage in conversation with others, I think, I think it's likely that many of those people will end up being able to change their theological perspective, Mm. but I don't want to make anybody, I don't want to try to shame or, you know, coerce anybody into changing their perspective because that's not a good way to change people's minds. But I do want to be you know in, encourage people to to take the time to really yeah engage the headpieces, uh, if especially if their heart is prodding them to 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 realize that you know there's more there that needs to be figured out.
1: Yeah yeah, I think it it's connected, but it's distinct when it comes to a lot of pastors and leaders in the church as well because one of my thoughts is that there's a lot of pastors who unconsciously or consciously avoid going on the full open honest journey of truly being open to reengage, rethink or reimagine how they think about the church and LGBTQ people and inclusion because somehow it registers on an unconscious level that like they might know or fear they could end up in a different place and they also understand the ramifications for their life if they do right as a pastor and a leader of anything, the moment something happens, it's amazing how the mind or the ego can the ego can contract so quickly because the mind immediately is like, "Well, if I accepted this, <clears throat> that's the ramifications of my life unfolding the next three to five years. money, kids in school, losing my job, doing all that right so it's like this unconscious there's like this unconscious wall within them to like going on the journey of truly being open because a part of them may suspect that they might change their minds or they're already on the way yeah. so, but they're like blocked like do you see that or do you have any insight into like that journey for pastors right now and sort of we're in 2021 where which which really is so different from even where we were 8 years ago oh so for sure it's so crazy how different things are right now with that but Does that, do you, do you see that? Do you resonate with that? Do you think that's true for people right now?
0: Oh, that people are held back because of fears of the consequences of changing the mind. Oh, absolutely. Um, But, and while of course, sometimes that can be maybe rooted in a more selfish motive, I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily always the case. I think that it's really challenging to be, I, I have a lot of, um, appreciation and sympathy for pastors who are in this position because it's very challenging if you're a pastor your church is not affirming you are changing your mind to become affirming that's a very intimidating place to be in and there are lots of concerns that may not be selfish at all that are still something that could give you a lot of uh heartache just no pastor wants to split their church Mm. right no pastor wants to um cause or a lot of pastors might be concerned too, that if they saw a church in their community that became affirming and maybe that church became affirming in a somewhat tumultuous way, and then the church shut down a few years later, well, the pastor might just think, well, I don't want my church to not exist anymore, not even primarily because then I won't have my income. I mean, maybe that'd be some people's thought, but just because they see all the good things that their church is doing. And they don't want that all to be lost. So this is actually why a uh, couple years ago, we started a program at the Reformation Project called Pastors in Process. And it's specifically for pastors of non-affirming churches who are wanting to lead their churches to be toward greater LGBTQ inclusion and affirmation. Because so many pastors just, they, they lack resources. They lack peer support. You can't exactly go on Facebook and and they just say, hey, this is where I'm at, looking for more support. <laughs> um, and, and it also is... It's, it's not an easy process, so that's why in that program we seek to connect pastors in that position with other pastors, in similar positions with other pastors who are a little bit further, who have been in that position a little bit longer, maybe some pastors who have led their churches to become affirming in ways that aren't terrifying, um, in ways that are still allowing that, the church to hold on to and even deepen its core theological commitments and beliefs, um, rather than feel like everything just got chucked. Um, you know, once this thing changed. So that's, I just, again, I like to reach people where they're at, Mm -hmm. try to get a sense of what their challenges are, what their greatest concerns are, and uh, then move forward. Because if it is a case where somebody's concerns are primarily selfish, then there's not much I can do about that, right? That's just going to require a heart change. But Mm -hmm. there are all kinds of people where they have concerns that, that are things that can be addressed and that you know, you just need to not always assume, you know, the worst in people, which, you know, if you spend too much time on social media, you can definitely get trained to develop very negative attitudes toward anybody who is not already where we might want people to be on this topic. And I just don't think that's healthy or helpful.
1: Mm. You know, one of the, before I move into the last question, one of the tragic, you know, ironies of, of our church in the United States of America when it comes to LGBTQ inclusion and relationships is one of the greatest expressions of grace right now is the grace LGBTQ people have for the church. Sometimes I I tell people, like, do you understand how much grace is required from a gay person, from a lesbian person, somebody who's bi, someone who's trans, to even want to still be a part of this and fight for the future of the beauty of our faith. Like the irony of communities of of grace, excluding the people who are extending tremendous, almost inexhaustible amounts of grace towards them while they're doing it to continue to want to be a part of it. And I bring that up because I hope people listening to this are paying attention close enough to recognize how, how Matthew is truly an embodiment of that very form of grace. Cause when I bring up oh a pastor might not want to do this because he's scared of losing his money, he's like, well it's more important, you know, he, he maybe he actually cares about his church. We can't assume the worst in people. I bring up something else and or about people. Matthew says but I but I but I understand that. I understand why a person's scared. I understand why it's hard for somebody to change. Like, I don't know. To me, that just, that just, it just struck me the way you responded last is that grace that I'll mention to people at times. I feel like in this conversation, you, my friend are truly such an embodiment of, so I'm so that's amazing. Well, that, is,
0: that is very kind of you, Kevin.
1: He was going to, yeah. So I don't know. I just, that, that struck me in that last response. And I would love to end, so the biblical case for LGBTQ inclusion, the new video curriculum, people I think for their own journeys, I think people who are your friends, you're in a church together and you're growing a great resource, leaders, pastors, that's a great resource. So remember that video curriculum you can find, I'm, I'm assuming through the Reformation Project, you can yes. find Matthew Bynes on Twitter and Instagram as well, his website, matthewbynes.com. You can find it through all of that. His book, God and the Gay Christian, which mind-blowingly was written almost 10 years ago when he was 22, probably published when you are 23 or 24, as a resource I would still point people to today, by the way. That's a great book, God and the Gay Christian. Now that I've said that, with the work you do as a person who's sensitive to the journey forward, head and heart, how serious you take the biblical study life of the church and the heart stuff, the people, the real people you're journeying with, can you think of one story from all of the amazing people you've encountered the past seven, eight, nine years, whether it's a parent, you know, it's a child, it's a parent and child relationship, or it's a pastor where through the work you've done, you can think about that story just in the legacy and the tradition as a part of the fruit where you're like that, like that's a part of the fruit of what we're doing here. That is an expression of, everything I want to see happen here to close us off with
0: oh boy you should have told me about this one and I know
1: I didn't plan it dude I just think I just thought about I mean I'm sure I'm sure there's I would just imagine there's like oh man you know when someone comes up to you and they talk to you about this or they send you this email and it's like those moments as a pastor where you're like like for me I'm gonna give you a second to think about this I was just writing about this in, in my second book, is, is all about letting go. And how letting go isn't one thing we do, it's, it's that thing that's beneath everything we do if we wanna do it well and with joy. And one of the things I talk about is what are the things we need to let go of to be more welcoming and inclusive. And I tell this story of this young LGBTQ woman who started coming to Imagine and she's sticking around longer and she wasn't even around that long when was the next time we did baptisms. And to my understanding, I could have a story wrong, But the day we did baptisms and she brings family members and it's our church there at the beach that she came out publicly for the first time right before she got baptized by our church. And to me, pastorally, that's one of those stories for me because I'm like the welcome and inclusion of the church became like an open door for this person to feel more welcomed and included by God. And for me, I don't take that for granted. Like that's one of those stories for me that I'll carry with me. Cause that's what you can, that's the power of flesh and blood is like when this person or these people accept you, something happens in your heart for you to believe you're act. you might actually be accepted by God. So like that public coming out right before her public declaration of faith to me, is just one of those stories. So I gave you more time to think about yeah, it, too, as I was yeah, telling
0: it. I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, there are really, there are a, a lot of really wonderful and beautiful stories, especially of parents with their kids and, like, reconciled uh, relationships, people. I mean, even lots of stories from people about, you know, they've been in a place of wanting to kill themselves and, you know, and then not anymore. Um i I'm trying to I mean I will say just to the probably the ones I'm thinking about most you know we, whenever we finish our conferences we you know we'll do these surveys to ask people you know their experience at the conference and this year at our conference, um the most consistent theme that stuck out to me was people talking about how much it helped them to just in to have more peace and confidence just in their faith. Mm. So not even just becoming affirming. So Mm. here's a quote from somebody uh, who uh, was in our survey this year. And he said, this conference was life-changing for me. I've been struggling with reconciling my faith and my bisexuality for many years now. This was the first conference of this kind for me. I grew up in the church as a missionary kid and pastor's kid, led worship since I was 15 Mm. um, and have never been able to experience a church environment where I felt completely safe and free. Mm. surrounded by other Christians with similar journeys as me. For most of my life, I felt very alone in this process. Um, and then he talks about how he said, coming into this conference, I've been, going into, I've been going deep into a deconstruction and tearing down process of my faith and what I believed. I felt like I was holding on by a thread in triage mode, ready to walk away from my faith. It was just too painful and too exhausting. Mm -hmm. The conference was a lifeline just in time. Mm -hmm. As a result of the conference, I have renewed faith, and I heard loud and clear that Jesus loves me, and I'm refusing to give up this treasure and walk away from him. I'm starting to see church differently and in a process of discerning how to engage in conversations with those in my church community." I've never felt the level of peace that I experienced since this conference. I've also never felt the, uh, the amount of emotions. I've never cried so hard since the conference. God is doing a good work and I'm holding on for the ride of what might be ahead. So, I mean, just that sort of feedback, I find really encouraging because to me it is, it's a, it's a two part thing. Like if I helped um, say, you know, a countless number of people become affirming, but then as a result of that, everybody then decided later on, yeah, Christianity is not true. <laughs> I wouldn't really feel great about what I had done. <laughs> mm. I would say like, well, I'm glad that you changed your mind about LGBTQ um, people. But to me that would, you know, for me, it's like, the reason I am passionate about LGBTQ inclusion and affirmation in the church is because I am passionate about Christianity. Mm. Mm. Like my belief in Jesus has always been my number one uh-huh. belief that has always been the single most important thing to me. Everything else comes as a result of that. It doesn't mean that it's less important in many ways. It actually makes those things more important than they would be otherwise because they're rooted in this like eternal transcendent reality and truth. So it's not just like, why does, why does it matter that Christians become affirming? Well, sure. It matters because non-affirming theology is in many ways, deadly and harmful to LGBTQ people. But it also matters because the message of the gospel is true and we are preventing people from seeing the truth of it by telling people, by mixing it in with something that is not true. And it doesn't even mean that it's a lie in the sense that anybody's intentionally trying to mislead people. I think that's very uncommon. But it's just, even when people sincerely believe it, but it's not true, it completely, for a lot of people, discredits the true message of Jesus. Um, and so for me, that's why like the, the, so that's why I'm ultimately passionate about LGBTQ inclusion, in the church, because I'm passionate about the church. I'm passionate about Christianity. And I mean, what is it that C.S. Lewis said about um, he said that uh, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else that really does capture my, how I've always felt about it. And so that's why, yes, I mean, I think LGBTQ inclusion affirmation is incredibly important and, and it opens the door for us to be able to share the message of God's love through Jesus with even more people unencumbered by this terrible, uh, Mm. you know, incorrect Mm. teaching.
1: Yeah. Wow. Matthew Vines, I already told you, I reminded you, the curriculum, the book, the the Reformation Project. I bet for the listeners right now, for some of you personally and for people in your life, they need to know about Matthew Vines and the work that he's doing. Friends, leaders, um, siblings, people in your family, I bet there are people whose lives would be enriched and who could be guided well by the work and presence of this Still, very young man, you know, who, who's coming on here, who has, who's done so much good and has so much good ahead. So, Matthew, thank you so much, man. I love this. dude. This was so good.
0: Well, thank you, Kevin. Really appreciate it.
1: Yes, and we will uh, stay in touch and uh, have a good. What what time is it? Where you're at right now? Five sixteen. Okay, it's one sixteen over here. I still, I'm picking up the kids from school soon with my wife. I got a whole day ahead of me. It's pretty sunny out here. It's eighty two degrees. So who knows what we're gonna get into. <laughs>
0: Very cool. Yeah. Well, have a good one, yeah,
1: thanks for.